from KDNK Community Access Radio in Carbondale, Colorado, in the United States. This is program number 39 of the Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. I'm Nick Eisenberg. When blind people go places, we don't experience them like our sighted friends. We don't see beautiful mountains or romantic sunsets. The goal of this program is to identify or even create experiences that are more meaningful for us and our sighted traveling companions. Frequently, as people lose their eyesight, they become more and more isolated. The tactile traveler hopes to not only empower people to go literally around the world, but around the block, to new adventures in their lives. Line ranges from people who are visually impaired, and contact lenses and glasses no longer allow them to lead a normal life. To people like me, who are totally blind. To sighted parents who have a blind child. Blind parents who have sighted children and blind parents with blind children, to people of all ages, interests, and physical abilities. On today's program, the ups and downs of altitude sickness, tactile trail maps, making sure you get everything you need in your suitcase before heading off, and tips on finding your suitcase at luggage claim, and how not to get caught in the rain on your vacation. If you're going up in the world, like on high mountains, you should be aware of altitude sickness. Altitude sickness is divided into three categories. The altitude sickness that most people traveling to the Western U.S. experience acute mountain sickness, or AMS, is defined as a headache plus one other symptom. So dizziness, lightheadedness, malaise or fatigue, nausea, vomiting, GI upset, but generally just not feeling quite right. That's Dr. Elizabeth Edelstein. I am the medical director for the MedCorp clinics at Yellowstone National Park and medical director for MedCorp clinic on Midway Atoll, as well as by trade, uh, an emergency physician at University of Colorado School of Medicine most common altitude illness, which is acute mountain sickness that people tend to get up here in the Colorado mountain towns. But if you're going higher than that, then there are more extreme versions of altitude sickness, high altitude pulmonary edema and high altitude cerebral edema. So it matters how high you're going, how fast you plan on getting there and what your plans are when you're there. Dr. Edelstein says your susceptibility to altitude sickness is inherited from your parents, even if they've never been at a high altitude. That is that is the case, yes. The physiology that you have is determined, like almost everything, as we're finding out, genetically and specifically with altitude, there's a factor called hypoxia-inducing factor, and it is something that can affect how genes are expressed, and people have different levels of this factor. 
And that's one of the things that's been identified as the, the cause of why some folks do very well at altitude and why some folks don't. So if you know that you've had these symptoms at altitude, most likely it's going to happen again. Dr. Edelstein says there are two medications that can help with altitude sickness. Well, if you know that you get it, there are ways to prevent it for the average visitor who is just coming to visit and not do anything exertional. There are some medications that you can take to prevent it. The most commonly prescribed medication to prevent altitude illness is acetazolamide or trade name of Diamox. And you start taking that about 12 to 24 hours prior to coming to a new altitude and then take it for at least one full day once you arrive at altitude. It's not for everyone. It has some cross-reactivity with some medications folks might be allergic to. It also is a diuretic. That is actually part of the way that it works to help someone get used to altitude or acclimatize to altitude. Um, so that can be somewhat bothersome when folks are traveling, the diuretic component to it. But acetazolamide is the gold standard. And for folks who can't take that, another option would be a steroid called dexamethasone. That can be started before arriving at altitude as well and taken into the first full day or two at altitude. And both of those medicines work to help your body acclimatize. What these medicines do is augment the body's normal response to altitude, the normal physiologic responses. And those drugs help augment those things. Those are prescription medications. As they should be, because there are side effects, like I mentioned before, there's some cross-reactivity with acetazolamide and sulfa drugs. So this is something that should be discussed with a healthcare provider who's familiar with the physiologic responses to altitude. If you search the internet, most sources say that altitude sickness begins at about 8,000 feet above sea level, which here in the United States would be fairly high in the mountains. Dr. Edelstein says it can begin a lot lower, where millions of people live. You can, actually, and high altitude for people, generally, if you look at the medical literature, says that it can start as low as 1,500 meters or about 5,000 feet. So here in Denver, we're at 5,000 feet. And similarly, Nick, when my father and stepmother from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, come to visit every time my stepmother feels, and I believe her, some level of altitude sickness manifested as some feelings of not feeling quite right, especially on exertion. You could fly from sea level in Los Angeles to the Vail Airport in Colorado, drive to the Breckenridge Ski Resort in Breckenridge, Colorado, get on one ski lift and ride to the top of the highest ski trail in North America, 12,998 feet. 962 meters above sea level in less than five hours. And that includes time to pick up your rental car and change into ski clothes. That's a huge change in altitude, enough to make someone who's susceptible to altitude sickness very sick. And people really do fly from sea level to mountain ski towns and ski the same day. And 
thousands of people drive over mountain passes, like 10,000 high-foot Vail Pass on Interstate 70 in Colorado, without problems, if they stay in their cars. You shouldn't, but 10,000... Well, 10,000 feet is getting to that higher elevation. So 10,000 feet, you probably won't have a problem. However, driving from Denver up to the top of Pikes Peak, which you can do, folks do have symptoms when they get out of the car on top of a 14,000 foot mountain. And that's in the range of very high altitude. If high altitude is 5,000 to 11,000 feet or 11,005, very high altitude is that next range, about 11,500 to 18,000 feet. So the Everest Base Camp altitude. And in those altitudes, people will have symptoms if you suddenly have an abrupt change of thousands of feet. If you're climbing or driving and get altitude sickness, eventually your symptoms should resolve as you acclimatize as you stay at the same altitude. If you arrive to a new high altitude and get symptoms, acute mountain sickness, headache, dizziness, not feeling well, further than that, for sure, shortness of breath at rest, then going any higher is not it is completely contraindicated. If the symptoms are mild, the acute mountain sickness symptoms that we talked about, then you can stay at that altitude, start treating those symptoms with medication, same ones that we mentioned for prevention can be used for treatment. And once the symptoms resolve, then you can continue to go higher in elevation. But if you have those symptoms, it's advised not to go any higher. And for some folks, the symptoms won't resolve. And those folks, they should descend. That would be the treatment. Surprisingly, if you're susceptible to altitude sickness, how well you adapt to altitude sickness isn't determined by how high you go in the daytime, but how high you are at night. The plan starting at 8,000 feet is generally to spend at least two to three days at that new altitude, sleep at that altitude, but hike or have day trips going to a higher altitude, but then sleep at that 8,000 foot elevation for a night or two before ascending to sleep at a new elevation. So it's that sleeping altitude that makes a difference in acclimatizing once you're at high altitude. Dr. Edelstein says everyone doesn't have to plan their trip to the highlands the same way. Well, the other things to consider are what are your goals in traveling to altitude? Are your goals to arrive, sit there and visit? Are your goals to arrive and immediately start skiing down from the top of Crested Butte at 12,600 feet? Are your goals to walk to Everest Base Camp at extreme altitude? So it matters what your goals are. For extreme altitude 
And now when I think about the folks coming to Colorado in the summers to summit our 14,000 foot peaks out here, people coming from sea level, is they are at risk for some serious altitude illness, high altitude pulmonary edema and high altitude cerebral edema. And those are the dangerous versions of altitude illness. High altitude pulmonary edema is the most common cause of death related to altitude illness. So those folks will really want to discuss with their healthcare providers any preventative measures they might want to take before stepping off a plane and climbing up a 14,000 foot mountain. They ought to seriously consider a rest day or two of sleeping in one of our mountain towns at an elevation of about 9,000 feet before doing that. And also look at their activities. Most people are coming out here on vacation. The first thing they do when they get to the airport is grab a drink and alcohol in addition to causing dehydration, which exacerbates altitude illness and also depress your respiratory drive when you're sleeping. And that can be a risk factor for altitude illness. Lori Parker helped with this story. You're listening to The Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low-vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. I'm Nick Eisenberg. On Program 33, we talked about how many people get lost while hiking. The Lighthouse for the Blind in visually impaired San Francisco has a way of reducing your chances of getting lost and enjoying your hike more. Tactile Trail Maps produce tactile maps that are both large print and tactile, and they also have Braille on them. And we can either produce them on paper or we can produce them, we can we can have them produced on other substances like, say, acrylic or, or metal. The ones that are paper, you can, we usually bind in booklets that people can carry with them. The ones that are on other surfaces are usually mounted. For example, last year, we did a set of trailhead maps for locations for hiking trails in the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, which is a national park area in the San Francisco Bay Area. Those ones were were mounted at the trailhead so that if, if a blind person wanted to walk the trail, they could go over to the trailhead and check out the map and know which how the trail was set up. Generally, the way, the way uh, when we do maps on paper, your typical paper map is maybe eight and a half by 11 inches or 11 and a half by 11 inches, or in, in some cases, 11 by 17 inches, but you can only show so much on that size paper. So what often happens is for a large area, say like a, a park or a college campus, the whole map can't fit on one sheet of paper. So you, we'll divide it into parts and each part will be on a different page. And then there will be a key for the map that will be on one or more additional pages and that will be bound into a booklet so that you can carry it with you. You can put it in a bag and carry it with you if you're wanting to go explore the area. Frank says getting just the right amount of information onto a trail map is an art. You want you don't want to get, make it so dis- detailed that it's t- overly complicated. On the other hand, you don't want it to be so sparse that it doesn't tell you enough. So it's a balancing act, making sure that you show enough but not too much to make it confusing. Frank says, creating tactile maps of trails that haven't already been made in the past isn't cheap. 
depends on the size of the map. The expensive part is designing the map because we charge by the hour to produce the map, you know, to design the map. And that's it's like $150 an hour. And so if it takes several hours to prepare the map design, then obviously we have to, we have to charge for that. But once that design is done, then it's just a, a, few do, a couple of dollars per page. So for example, let's say that you had a state park and they wanted to make maps of, of, of their, their hiking trails. They would need to contract with us to do the design for the map and we would do that. And then in the future, if they wanted to get multiple copies of the map, then it would just be a, a reasonable price per copy for the map. But the big expense is the first design of the map. But like how the blind and visually impaired San Francisco can make tactile maps of most addresses and surrounding areas for a much more affordable price. Another service that we provide is what we call our T-Map, where you can contact our store at the Lighthouse, the Adaptation Store, give us the address that you want a map for, and that map will show the streets around the address and because that's an automated process it doesn't cost us it doesn't take us a lot of time to generate that map so we can produce those maps at 25 dollars a piece we don't have to employ expensive professional designers to, to generate those maps so that's why they're so much less expensive if you want one of our simple street maps that we call t-maps you can order those from the store at, at the lighthouse in san francisco the store is called adaptations and you can either call them at 888-400-8933 888-400-8933 or you can go to directly to their website which is adaptations.org The Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired San Francisco also has tactile maps of the United States for $15.75 in their adaptation store. You can get two 17 by 17 inch maps. One doesn't have state names and the other has post office abbreviation names both in braille and raised types for each state. You're listening to the Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. I'm Nick Eisenberg. Leaving things out of your suitcase when you pack for a trip or packing to go home or to the next leg of your trip can be a real hassle for everyone. But it can be especially easy to do if you're blind. Jason Struther has a suggestion you might find useful. We usually pack our suitcases on a bed or other flat surfaces, and in the process, we leave things outside the suitcase, we move things around, we transfer items from one suitcase to another. They go all over the place. And so, sometimes it's easy to lose track of where everything went. An easy way to make sure that you've packed everything is to use the free app, Be My Eyes. When you tap on this app, an excited volunteer somewhere in the world who speaks your language will use the camera on your phone to look around the entire room to make sure that everything that needs to be in the suitcase is in or nearby. While you're at it, have the agent check out the floor as well as underneath your suitcase. And if you're staying in a hotel, go the extra step or maybe several extra steps. Ask the Be My Eyes volunteer to check out the bathroom, the closet, or inside drawers to make sure you're not forgetting a single thing. You can also use Ira to help you pack, but that service is going to cost you. Thank you, Jason. You're listening to the Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low-vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. I'm Nick Eisenberg.
Finding a suitcase at luggage claim can be a real challenge for all of us. Lydia Eckert has some suggestions you might find useful. First, decorate your suitcases with lots of brightly colored duct tape, including fluorescent orange, yellow, pink, brown, black, green, zebra stripes, tie-dye. It makes it easy to spot them as they come down the carousel. Luggage claim and luggage storage rooms if you have low vision, if you need to describe them to others. They will see your luggage coming from a long way. They will be able to guide you to them if you carry a backpack that you need with you on a plane, train, or bus that you won't need to get into until you reach your hotel or your destination. Put it inside your suitcase. That will take a weight off your shoulders and will be one less thing to worry about. And finally, take pictures of your suitcases and backpack with your cell phone. That way, if you need to describe your suitcases or backpacks to luggage claim or strangers helping you, they'll be able to see what they really look like. Thank you, Lydia. You can't stop it from raining on your parade, but you can schedule your parade when it's less likely to rain. Most of us don't spend a whole lot of time scheduling parades, but we do schedule outdoor activities and vacations. I worked in Estes Park, Colorado, a town in a valley at the base of steep mountains, and Charlotte County, Florida, on the southwest side of the Florida Peninsula, both big tourist destinations, and both have the same summertime problem, torrential rains and lightning and thunderstorms for about 20 minutes at about the same time every afternoon. In Estes Park, the storms are caused by the sun warming the sides of the steep mountains in the mornings. Since warm air rises, it creates an updraft in the valley. The updrafts bring moisture with them from the water in the valley. The rising moisture forms clouds. When they become supersaturated, it rains hard with lots of thunder and lightning. Something similar happens in Florida, except mountains heating up from the morning sun. Storms are formed when moisture from the Atlantic Ocean on the east coast of Florida heats up, which also causes an updraft laden with moisture and mixes with the moisture caused the same way from the Gulf of Mexico on Florida's west coast causing clouds in the middle, which is over the Florida Peninsula. When those clouds become supersaturated in the afternoon, it rains frequently with thunder and lightning. In both places, the afternoon rains are so much a part of daily life, the locals don't think about telling tourists that it's likely to rain about 1 o'clock every afternoon. So research where you're going, either through the National Weather Service weather apps or by asking people in your hotel if it usually rains about the same time every day. Then you can schedule indoor activities like lunch, shopping, and museums instead of being caught in a lightning storm on top of a mountain. On a golf course, or in a canoe or whitewater raft, a long way from shelter. Dr. Sam Ng helped with this story. You're listening to The Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low-vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way.
I'm Nick Eisenberg. Why, it's my talking scale, reminding us that we'd like you to weigh in on how we're doing. Please send us an email to the tactile traveler at gmail.com. And please remember, we spell traveler the American way with one L. If you'd like to help underwrite this program, please send us an email with underwriting in the subject line to the tactile traveler at gmail.com. This program's also being broadcast on the Audio Information Network of Colorado and in additional states. It's also available by typing the tactile traveler into any search engine and wherever you get podcasts and by asking your smart speaker to play the tactile traveler. Sometimes you have to ask it to play the podcast, the tactile traveler. We'd like to thank the following people and organizations that help make this program possible. Be My Eyes Microsoft Accessibility Tech Support. Apple Accessibility Tech Support. Leslie Steffen. Pat Conneros. Lorraine Hutchinson. Debbie O'Leary. Sarah Williams. Sophia Williams. Kaylee Romero. And Wally Burley. This has been the Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. This has been a production of KDNK Community Access Radio, Carbondale, Colorado.